This is African Port, and I am Philip Nyakbo. Around February 2005, I interviewed Chachu Chikata, a renowned Ghanaian legal practitioner and former boss of GNPC, the Ghana National Petroleum Corporation. Many years after the original television interview, I am making the audio version available on African Port. Now here is that groundbreaking interview. He's one of the best trained brains and the most talented people in Ghana. He knows all about law. In fact, once when he reckoned that the fast track court were unconstitutional, the Supreme Court of the Republic of Ghana upheld it. People think he's a legal wizard. Once he was the chief executive of the GNPC, the Ghana National Petroleum Corporation, but there, some people thought he failed. The Ghanaian Chronicle newspaper, for example, said that he was guilty, and that he was guilty uh, because he was corrupt, that he said he has uh, mismanaged $400 billion of, or more of GMPC's money. But his alleged guilt has not been proved beyond reasonable doubt, even though so many years have passed. Well, my guest, is Chachu Chikata. Well, thank you very much, sir, for joining us on Sky TV. It's an honor to be on Sky TV. Describe yourself to me. Who are you? I'm a lawyer. I'm a Ghanaian. And um, I've had the privilege, among other things, of uh, teaching in the University of Ghana, teaching law. And I've also had the privilege of serving the country in various capacities, particularly as Chief Executive of the Ghana National Petroleum Corporation. I've also been involved in, as a member of the economic management team during the NDC government period. So I've also been a cricketer for the country. And um, I've, I've done what I can to serve this country, to be of service to God and country. Uh, sounds American, God and country. Yeah. <laughs> well. What, what was your early life like? Tell me about it. My early life, um, I was born in Keta, but I didn't live there, I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Accra. My father was uh, working for the UAC, and uh, so I grew up in Accra. I started school at Accra Newtown Experimental School. It's still there, you know, down... Uh, Accra Newtown, and um, actually, that's wrong. I actually started school at Mrs. Sam's Preparatory School, uh, which is now called New Nation in, in the Nima area. I started for some months before I moved to Accra Newtown, and um, it's from Accra Newtown Experimental School that I also then went to Mfansipim um, in January 1960, and then from Mfansipim I went to Legon and graduated from Legon, and then I proceeded to do graduate work in Oxford. Came back to teach, and the rest is history, as we say. The rest, like um, <laughs> your, your meeting Rollins, and Rollins once called you uh, his darling man. Um, well, how, how did you meet been, Rollins, you know, the former been, president? There have been, been too many misrepresentations <laughs> about what Rollins called me. I think. Um, uh, the Chronicle once claimed he called me a financial wizard. It never happened. That, that never actually happened. But 
um, Rawlings and I are related, of course, and... Uh, you related? Well, what what related. means? You mean you were related uh, by his blood? Mother. Yes, yes, on his mother's side. And his mother um, uh, is, is, a, is a relation of mine. So, and we grew up in the same area, Adaraka, official town in those days. And so we knew each other from those days. But for a long period during our secondary school days and, you know, later... Uh, we were not in contact. I think we regained contact sometime in 79. And um, from then on, we had a very close uh, working relationship. I, I represented him at his trial uh, in, in Burma camp. And then, of course, he was released by his uh, colleagues. And that also led to another whole period. So, who is older, you or He's Rawlings? older. He's a couple of years older. So, you represented Rawlings uh, back in 1979. Um, uh, can you tell me just a bit of that representation, that story, is part of Ghana's history, because then Rawlings became a hero because he, right. he got right. to be free. It was actually a very significant period for me because we knew the extent to which the Champong period you know, was really a disaster for the country in so many respects. And, um, you know, from the time that I was teaching on campus at the University of Ghana, we sensed the mood of the country. You know, you could feel the dissatisfaction and the pent-up feelings and the decline of the country generally. And so it was interesting. One of the students that I had at that time who was... In contact, you know, got, I'd got to know uh, Rawlings quite well, was the person who sent a message to me that, you know, he had got to meet this person and he had mentioned that he, you know, was a relation of mine and so on. So through that, we got to reconnect uh, and so on. So at this trial, when, when, when he was arrested after the May uh, 15th um, episode, when he was arrested... It was quite normal for you know, his wife and, and his mother to contact me and, and to ask whether I would uh, represent him. And I remember, I think the day, the weekend before, um, after the trial had started, I think I was in Burma camp for the few days in the week when the trial started. Then that weekend, just to give you a sense of the spirit of the time amongst even the soldiers, that weekend I had to go to... Um, a wedding, and the reception was in the Air Force mess. And something happened to my car on the road, so I had to take a taxi and get finally to the airport, uh, the Air Force mess. As soon as I got there, I was looking for change to pay the driver. And somebody walks over to me, obviously a soldier, and he says to me, don't worry, your man will soon be free. And that was my first sense of the kind of pent-up feeling. And this was somebody who had never met me. He just walked over to me. And in fact, he ended up paying the taxi driver for me. So the point I'm making is that there was clearly such a lot of solidarity with Jerry Rawlings at that time amongst young soldiers. And um, that gave me the sense that even beyond how we felt as civilians in the country, Within the military, there was a lot of pent-up anger and emotion that was just waiting to explode. And so it was not a surprise to me when, 
you know, very soon afterwards, he was actually released by his Well, colleagues. he certainly had sympathy among people, but the conventional thinking was that he was guilty. How did you get him freed? No, I didn't get him freed. In fact, the trial didn't go beyond a very early stage because uh, what, it was whilst it was going on that June 4th also then erupted. And June 4th, as I said, erupted clearly as an expression of the mood within the military at the time. There was a lot of pent-up feeling, pent-up emotion. Were you part of the June 4 explosion? I can't claim to have been in any way a part of that because that explosion was clearly something that came out from the ranks of the military. It was very much something that expressed the, you know, the, the, the systematic, you know, ex I mean, the, just the expression of, of the, the anger of, of people in the military at how they'd been treated, you know, especially by higher officials, the establishment of the military and so on. And um, it also gave expression to what people felt about the, the state of the country, the decline of the country. You see, I think, unfortunately, we are tending perhaps to forget that period. We're tending to refuse to remember that the AFRC and its aftermath was really a direct reaction to what happened in that period of Ghana's politics under Champong. So, Mr. Chatuchi Kata, are you a politician? No, I don't really see myself as a politician. Frankly, I have always seen myself as a servant, first and foremost, as, as somebody able to put whatever talents I have uh, at the service of, of others. I mean, you know, in, in my legal career, for instance, I have also had the opportunity to, you know, provide legal assistance, you know, to people uh, in circumstances where perhaps it would have been difficult for them to receive assistance. I mean, even in the ex example I gave of, of uh, Jerry Rawlings, at the time, very few people were willing even to be seen as defending him or representing him. And I was therefore involved in not only his defense, but also helping law other lawyers to be of service to, to some of the other people accused with him and other soldiers in similar circumstances. I also, during the same Achampong period, was involved in representing people like Mr. William Oferiata, Samio Kujato, when they were uh, detained in, in that period. And, and we had to bring habeas corpus proceedings uh, in the courts to challenge their detention and um, other people who were then in, in prison. And for me, these were opportunities to be of service, you know, in terms of the country's constitutional development. Apart, apart from your desire to serve, are you drawn to politics at all? I'm not, frankly, because I, I think that the only sense in which I can talk about my, my being political is, of course, in my convictions about the wider society and about the need to contribute to the society's development. That, those are very intense convictions that I have. Um, but when I say I'm not a politician, I really have no ambitions about, you know, holding political office and that sort of thing. That has not really been in my line of thinking. What, what's your talent in your own words? Well, I think that, you, you know, you described certain talents in relation to the legal area. I, ha I have been a teacher of, of law in the university, as you know, and, and I think that um, 
in, in whatever little way I can describe it. I mean, I have had some influence on the thinking of, you know, students who came through my hands in that, in that period. Many of them are occupying very responsible positions today, and I'm, I'm proud of them. Of course, I'm, I'm not proud of some of them, but no. most well, of them I am proud of. Probably let me take that word out of your mouth and then uh, maybe just go on to ask uh, you to tell me about your legal training because uh, you are thought to have come out to be exceptional. Yes, I was, again, very blessed with people who mentored me, people who took an interest in my development and, and who helped me. I mean, Professor Fuswama is an obvious example. Uh, he was one of the teachers in the University of Ghana at the time. Uh, Dr. Mensah, who was dean of the faculty at that time. Kofi Deanan, who was also one of my teachers. Sam Jando and a whole host of other people. And I think that the legal training that I received certainly helped my analytical capabilities. It helped my thinking processes about society and so on. And, um, you know, I had also, when I went back into teaching in the university, I had some fantastic colleagues with whom, you know, we had a lot of brainstorming, like uh, Professor Aki Sawyer, uh, Kuisi Boche, uh, my older brother Fui, and, uh, you know, a whole host of others. And, and we, in that period in the law faculty, we had a very exciting kind of intellectual debate that was going on, and not just in the faculty of law, but we often extended it beyond the faculty. I, I was often involved in seminars with the people in the Department of Philosophy, Political Science Department, and so on. So it was, it was really a, an exciting intellectual period, I thought, you know, and, and I, I still believe that that shaped you know, the, the lives of many of the students who came through our hands. So, uh, Socratic teacher of the law, perhaps. Uh, so, what, what really, what did you teach and whom did you teach? One of my main areas was uh, legal theory, jurisprudence, as it was called. Um, I also taught, that was taught in the third year. Then, then I also had a class for the first year, it's called Ghana Legal System, which was a, a broad introduction to the elements of the Ghana legal system, how customary law fits in with the English common law background and so on. And amongst the people that I had the privilege to teach are uh, people like uh, Mr. Kwam Nahoy, um, the current Attorney General, uh, Papa Usuan Kuma, as well as his two deputies, um, Gloria Akufo and uh, Derry. And also the two deputy speakers, Freddie Blay and um, Mr. Jurassa, uh, Ben Kunbo. Sorry, I should be calling them all honorable, but you can assume that uh, I have the word honorable before their names. And um, a whole host of other people. <laughs> As I say, there's some that are, you know, uh, Trichu Opoku, Guzitano, a whole host of them. The two deputies of the Republic, uh, Parliament of the Republic of Ghana now and deputy speakers, deputy yes. speakers, yes. and uh, Papa the Attorney General, and his two deputies as well. Right. Yes. Yes. And a few others. A few others. Yeah. You, you said you are proud of some of them, and you are not proud of some of them who are well, your students. <laughs> that's true. Who, who are the shining stars? Let me say that. You know, a lot of them are really shining stars, uh, a lot of them that I've mentioned. I mean, I think that, you know, without question, somebody like Kwam Nahoy, uh, 
who was, I think, in the very first group that I, I taught when I came back from Oxford. Um, you know, he stood out very, very clearly, even, even in that period. And, um, you know, I think that people, later on, people like um, Guzi Tano also stood out very much. And you do know my um, next question. Who are the ones that have not shown, <laughs> that have disappointed you? Well, let, let me give you an obvious one, and I won't mention any more names. I, I think somebody like Chris Asher, you know, really... Oh, you um, taught him? I taught him as well. Um, I don't think that he lives, he measures up to the sort of standards that I expect my students to uh, measure up to, unfortunately. And I think he's uh, shown in, in, in uh, the role he's played before the National Reconciliation Commission, for instance. I think that he's shown a tremendous disservice to this country, um, a very untruthful character. And, and I think that it is dangerous for this country that somebody like that had the kind of star billing that he had when he first came. Uh, to appear before the commission. But as I say, I, I, let, let, let's not get into just these individual... Uh, Chris Asher, is he still a practicing lawyer, and even with um, the Ghana Bar Association? Do you, what, what I do you know? really don't know. I really don't know. Um, he was convicted by a public tribunal of fraud, and normally, you know, such a conviction would probably lead to you being removed from the role of uh, lawyers. But I don't know what has happened. He, he, he has many powerful friends as well. So I, I don't know whether the, the normal consequences have followed from his uh, conviction. What do you call powerful friends? Well, just read the acknowledgments page of his book, which he's published, a book that's full of outrageous lies against some of us. But you read the acknowledgment page, and he tells it all. You know, he mentions people who are ministers in the government, Major Kwashika, D.K. Osei, the secretary to the president, Elizabeth Ohini, the minister, and so on. I mean, you know, Ken Amankwa, who was, I believe, uh, direct, deputy director general of GBC, and so on. And he mentions them in a very significant context. He mentions them as people who have helped uh, him in relation to his ability even to write the book, to live and to write the book. And that for me is quite significant. Let's move on now to a different matter. And uh, it's about the GNPC. And uh, you were chief executive of GNPC for a long time, years. for 12 years. Yes. Well, that's um, uh, maybe half of a generation. What did you do wrong there? Because according to the Ghanaian Chronicle newspaper, which, which is uh, considered very credible, you messed up uh, billions of CDs and a whole lot of things, and apparently there was nobody to call it to order. Those were the charges of Ghanaian Chronicle. What did you do well, wrong? You know, the Ghanaian Chronicle literally for years waged a campaign against me. There's absolutely no question about that. And I think what is significant is that a lot of that campaign was based on no facts about what the claims were. And I'll give you a very simple example because there was an occasion when I did a press conference and the editor of the Ghanaian Chronicle was present and made some of these allegations. I mean, he claimed, contrary to my statements about projects that GMPC was doing, which involved a lot of capital without question, he claimed that there was no basis, there were no feasibility studies. I just did them on my own, and so on and so forth. And I challenged him. I said, look, what you're saying, there's absolutely no basis for what you're saying. 
I was working in an organization where we had also a lot of technical people with the requisite expertise in different areas. And these things were backed by technical documentation. He still maintained his position, but I mean, you can see clearly it's somebody who wants to hold a certain position at all costs, whatever the evidence. I think that one of, let me say that amongst the most important and significant things that I think we achieved in relation to GMPC was to set up within a national context a body that began to concentrate a lot of capacity in an important industry in the world. In the global economy, oil is major. And I believe that the ability to create a national oil company, which is an ability that many other countries have recognized the importance of, and to use local capacity and to develop that capacity in the way that we saw to do in GMC, I think that these are very important. But the second point that I want to highlight is that we also, in GMPC, in this period, difficult as it was, with hardly any resources coming from the government, we were also able to generate considerable investment in the oil and gas sector in relation to exploration and also in beginning the possibility of producing oil and gas in this country with a focus on using the gas for electricity generation. In fact, I'm, I'm very sort of uh, struck by the fact that we're speaking today on, on Sky TV uh, in, in the Western region, an area which was very much a focus for our work in oil and gas development, the tunnel project. That's a project that, uh, according to Coombson, has no prospects. It's just a pipe dream of mine in which a lot of money was pumped and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, the documentation doesn't bear him out. That's a project that has its origins in the public expenditure, uh, the, 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 uh, the program that the government established and approved you know, for public projects in that period. And right from as far back as 86, even before I became a chief executive of the Ghana National Petroleum Corporation, which was about um, sometime, I think, 88, Right from that time, this, these projects in Tano and Sawpond, they had been approved as part of a government you know, program. And it's published, it's documented. And they've been approved based on work that had been done even before me, work that you know, a lot of very talented Ghanaians had contributed to. And for me, part of the sad thing about some of the propaganda that people like Kofi Kumsun have you know, really engaged in is that it has made it look as if GMPC was just me. But GMPC has consisted for a long time of very capable, very bright Ghanaians in so many areas, in geology, in geophysics, in engineering. Where, where were you getting money to finance your project? Right. Because according to the paper, the its expositions that you were wasting money. Really, does Ghana have oil? We do. And that has been proven not by Chachuchikata, who is no geologist, who is no petroleum engineer, but by the technical work that has been done, as I was saying, by many brilliant, dedicated, hardworking Ghanaians who have qualified in these fields and who are still capable of exposing their capacity to whoever cares to ask them. In fact, when Kofi Kumsun at that um, 
press conference, trying to challenge all this. I the said, press you know, conference of the 2000, press conference of 2001, September, which, which I held, which he was saying, no, there are no fees. I said, you know, forget Chachuchikata. Go talk to those people who have the knowledge about the technical details, even beyond me. So I have no question about that. We started again producing all from the Solpon field in November 2000. A lot of people don't know that. And since then, all production has actually continued in the Solpon field, even though it was interrupted for a period because the new government so somehow had some issues um, about the agreement that we signed and so on and so forth. And you remember, this became another subject. In itself. But we, were, we are producing oil from the Solpon field. Limited amounts, but it's still there. In the tunnel fields, north and south tunnel, we have the capacity to produce oil. But let me tell you one other important thing. Much of this debate that was you know, instigated, for instance, uh, when Kofi Kumsen's Chronicle started to write, in fact, had very little to do with GNPC's expenditures in relation to oil exploration. In fact, the issue that a lot of people don't realize was at the bottom of all that had to do with our import of crude oil from Nigeria for processing at the refinery for sale, the petroleum products. And that problem, the problem whereby GNPC has to import at a certain price, then we sell the petroleum products based on government-regulated prices, at a loss. which are lower than the costs that are incurred. That problem is still with us today. In fact, soon after, you know, Tema Oil Refinery also took over this function as a result of the government's decision that it should be taken over by Tema Oil Refinery, Tema Oil Refinery also started running into hundreds of billions of dollars, which today are in trillions. So when we, you know, the scale of the problem has in fact increased. And the reason is simply because we did not learn the lessons from GMPC's experience. People started blaming Chachuchikata instead of seeing the structural problem that we have when an organization is given the responsibility to undertake this important national task and yet does not have the resources and has to have as an ongoing cycle of, in effect, bottling up the costs that have gone into servicing the nation in relation to petroleum products. It's a, it's a major issue, and I really wish that someday perhaps people will have an in-depth appreciation of that problem, because that's the problem that Tema Oil Refinery have today. That's the problem which has led to bonds being floated in order to deal with their, you know, their costs and so on and so forth. It's, it's a real problem. And sir, uh, well, some oil was hit, yes, but um, never it seems in commercial quantities. Why? You know, North and South Tunnel fields have the capacity to produce commercially modest amounts of oil, six to 8,000 barrels a day, not a lot admittedly, but also very significantly, a considerable amount of natural gas which can be used for power generation. For me, one of the saddest parts of my reflections today is the fact that we still have not completed that tunnel project and made available the gas resources that are richly available in the western region of Ghana, offshore, in order to give us electricity generated much cheaper than is being generated at Abuazi. In Abuazi, we're importing expensive crude oil 
to fire turbines which could operate at one-third the cost using natural gas. Why are we putting ourselves through that? And the gas resources are available to do that. And the plans and the projects to achieve that are there. We have a mining industry in Ghana that could benefit from such a major reduction in the cost of power that we could have access to from using our own gas. We have the opportunity also using this gas development to attract even further investment in our oil and gas production opportunities. It's for me a sad aspect of, of, of you know, my sort of reflections that that project seems to be somehow in midair. Who, know, who knows? Well, maybe someday that may come. But within the same context about cheaper sources of energy, there is the West African Gas That's Pipeline right. Project. Where does it come in? Will it really The help? West African Gas Line Project was indeed a project that we initiated. In fact, I can say that GMPC should be proud of the initiatives that we took in order to push NNPC in Nigeria, our counterpart, and then also, more importantly, to get Shell and Chevron together to combine with us. Those initiatives were taken very much from GMPC. In 1998, when we held our Oil and Gas Africa conference, at which all these companies were uh, involved, we held a roundtable discussion, which was really the initiating point of that project. Now, unfortunately, I think that many things have happened since those days, which frankly take the project in a different direction from what I think represents the interests of Ghana. Because one, the kind of price of gas from Nigeria that we were talking about in those days is quite different from what is being talked about today. Different means there is cheaper at or least what? much more expensive. We're talking of expensiveness by as much as 60 to 70% beyond what we had been negotiating in those days with especially Chevron. And for me, these are significant because if we're making you know, long-term commitments, 20 years commitments for uh, uh, companies that are willing to supply gas from Nigeria and so on, that cannot be at the expense of our own natural resource in Ghana. What we tried to do was in fact to marry the projects together to make sure that our own natural resources were developed and in fact became the initial source of supply and then got complemented by the imports. And we in fact also try to ensure that we also cooperated with Cote d'Ivoire because right next to us on the border, on the western border, there are some gas resources which we also wanted to marry into the whole tunnel project as, as one sort of integrated uh, cross-border project such that Ghana is never held to ransom, whether by Nigeria on the one hand or by, by Cote d'Ivoire or indeed by the limited nature of our own gas resources. So the plan had always been to create the kind of regional infrastructure that makes us access both our neighbors' resources as well as our own. I'm not sure that that is still the kind of picture that we're seeing. And from what we understand, uh, GNPC, which is Ghana, has 16% shares in the West African Gas Pipeline project. Um, is that uh, That idea has been taken away and it's been given to VRA. Now, again, the reality is that VRA does not have the expertise in this industry. That's just a fact. They are very good in terms of hydroelectricity and so on. But in relation to gas, VRA has no expertise. So 
That, in fact, is part of the danger that I'm talking about, that in effect, Ghana's real interest in this project will not be maintained to the extent that it could be by people who really understand. Again, I, I'll give another simple example. In the agreements, the earliest memorandum of understanding on the West African gas pipeline, this infrastructure was expressed as an open access pipeline. That means that it's a pipeline which once it's established, if anywhere along the length of the pipeline, say we discover gas, as GNPC, we are entitled to use that infrastructure. Well, of course, we have to pay a tariff, but it means that that pipeline is always available to us. It's an open access pipeline. Now, unfortunately, because VRA is not, a, is not likely ever to be a gas producer, that open access uh, possibility that GMPC had, first of all, is not there for them. Secondly, and even more important, in the current agreements that are being developed, that open access principle is being limited to such an extent that the producers from Nigeria who are interested only really in selling their gas into Ghana have an advantage over production in Ghana. I think that those are unfortunate aspects which will not be to the interest of Ghana. Well, all, all that aside, um, a few weeks ago, well, not long ago, the Cosmos Energy of uh, the United States has entered into agreement with Ghana and they want to start exploring oil in Ghana and start pro production uh, next year, hopefully. Um, is it uh, something that's going to work? Well, I hope so. I don't know too many details about the Cosmos uh, Energy Agreement. And my understanding, frankly, at the moment, is that they are beginning a preliminary stage of exploration. But you talked about production next year. I'm hearing that uh, for the first time. My understanding is that they're going to be engaged in some exploration. There's no question that the more we can attract investment into this area, the better. And that's why I was proud to say that GNPC was able to attract a considerable number of companies over the years. I think that, sadly, most of those companies are no longer operating. They are no longer uh, engaged in any investments. Um, it's taken three years for one company, Cosmos, to express interest. I think it's unfortunate that the momentum of the earlier efforts was not maintained, because I think if we had maintained that momentum, we would definitely have more companies than just Cosmos. I don't, Cosmos is not that well-known a company. It's um, hopefully going to make some investments, and I hope certainly that they end up you know, in, in, in successful for the country as well as for the company itself. But I think that what GMPC itself initiated, especially in relation to the Tunnel Basin, is frankly beyond anything that Cosmos Energy is seeking to do now. GMPC was in a position to begin production of oil and gas and to link it up with power generation in this country. And I think that that is an important program that cannot just be, you know, let go. Let's gallop now into uh, legal, uh, let's gallop back into legal areas. Uh, there are a couple of legal proceedings against you and it's been some years now. How are you able to keep your nose above the legal waters? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, there are more than a couple of things that have been initiated. Um, the, there's a case that I am uh, having to address now, which started initially as a case before the second tribunal. Uh, then it traveled for some time. The attorney general at that time, um, the, the current foreign minister, 
withdrew that particular action before the circuit tribunal. Then they started something, as you rightly said, before the fast track court, which I challenged, um, you know, in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court initially decided in my favor. And as soon as they decided in my favor, the Attorney General went to the normal high court. The normal high court threw out the case. Then they went back to a, another fast-track court uh, um, in order to start the proceeding. Anyway, so that is the case that has been going on. We made a submission for no case because the evidence that was given in the case did not provide any basis for me to have to answer a case. Secondly, there were some important constitutional principles that were clearly being flouted. There are constitutional principles against retroactive legislation. In other words, you can't criminalize something which at the time it was done had no law against it. In other words, something that was not an offense at a certain time, then you pass a law subsequently and try to criminalize it. We pointed out clearly that the case against me involved actions that I took before the law about financial loss and so on was passed. And those are important constitutional principles. So anyway, this challenge uh, is, is before the Supreme Court. Um, we just finished the arguments on it, and the, the decision will be taken on the 27th of um, October. Um, but I, I have to say that, and it's unfortunate, but the, the, the clear impression that, that one has from the way that these cases against me has been brought, uh, have, have been brought is that, I mean, there is a determination to find a case against me at all costs. I mean, you know, so one is taken before the circuit tribunal, it's withdrawn, another substitute. I, there was a situation where within a space of about two days, I have four or five different charges that were being you know, uh, uh, launched against me. And you ask yourself, I mean, if, if, if there was a real case, why not get to the real case itself? Four or five different charges. Eventually one gets brought, then it gets withdrawn, then it gets brought before another court. And we've gone on like this. And, and the determination is there. You see it in some of the media that are used to propagate some of these stories, you know. And you, you see a determined, you know, move. And, and I have to say, again, we live in a very small country. We know the things that get said in certain circles. You know, I mean, there is a determination. But I think that nothing that I have done deserves to be criminalized in that manner. And Professor. I certainly continue to stand my ground in defending my innocence. When I say professor, does your counsel, your lawyer, lawyer's name occur to you, Professor Dankwa? Yes, yes. Um, he and I were mates. We went to Legon the very same day, and um, we've maintained a very close relationship. And some people have wondered how you, uh, a star lawyer, will carry a heavyweight lawyer behind you. Well, he's a heavyweight lawyer. I know that from my, my, my own um, uh, experience uh, of being his classmate. And, and we, 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 we've got on very well together. We, we have shared a lot in common. We uh, were both in Oxford you know, for our, our graduate work. And, um, and then he went on to Yale to do his doctorate and came back. So that and, and, and with him, you, um, well, with him, the Supreme Court overturned or upheld your, your opinion that the fast track courts were unconstitutional. How, how did you feel at that time when the whole country was, was, was held know, in awe? Frankly speaking, I may well have underestimated the significance of that whole sort of issue of the fast track court because 
I think what we were trying to make clear was something very simple and very basic, that you cannot have the chief justice just by some kind of administrative fiat creating new courts. That you cannot do. The Constitution doesn't allow that. The argument that was being made about the chief justice has created a division. Again, we were seeking to point out that, in fact, the documentation that was coming even from the Attorney General's office did not justify that interpretation. That was just a division of the high court. They were calling it a separate, a new court. That could not be justified. Significantly, even though the review, you know, you know all the machinations that happened, a new justice of the Supreme Court was appointed, a justice who had been hearing some cases in the fast track court, and he was then appointed, added to the panel, and then the case got, the decision got reversed and so on. But significantly, even after that review decision, the positions that we have articulated in that case, especially positions pointing out that the whole process of automating courts is not something that you should restrict to a division of the court. It's a process that is important for all courts. That is, in fact, the path that has now been taken. So well, that automation is no longer just being identified with a division of a court, which is exactly our position. And so, for now, is it still your opinion that a court is um, unconstitutional as of now? Well, you see, it, it's, it is as a court in itself, but what has been done now, as it were, to give it a constitutional you know, sort of outlook is that it is now being operated as just a high court. And that's exactly the position that we took from the first uh, go. That if we are talking about just a regular high court operating the same rules as the high court does, then of course we can't have any problem with that. But here was a situation where certain new rules were even being set to be rules of the court. Rules which had not been passed by the body constitutionally dedicated to establish rules, namely the rules of court committee. Some rules that were somehow just administratively put out by a so-called you know, fast-track court coordinator. So, so did you achieve you know, something? We in, definitely in, achieved. I what think did you achieve in one sentence? What we achieved very clearly was to have the Chief Justice recognize that you cannot do things administratively with the Constitution requires to be done through a certain procedure, whether it's the rules of court committee or whatever. And indeed, that was the reason why later on in that same period, when the Chief Justice tried to impose certain fees for court processes, the lawyers, the Bar Association actually, again, rose against that. It was exactly the same position. Yeah, I just want to know, so now how do you live your life? You do look quite simple. Uh, when I met you and even now, how do you live your life? I live it as simply as you met me and as you saw me. There, you know, there are a lot of... Uh, mysteries and so on and, and myths that people create about some of us but really we live a regular normal life and I, and I think that um, that that is really how it should be I I feel that um, I've been given you know thank God an opportunity to be of service to my country I, I feel proud of, of what I try to do I, others may judge it differently and it's up to them to make those judgments but I feel proud of it, and I continue to feel that wherever the opportunities to serve, to be of service in our country, and indeed more broadly, because there are other countries also where uh, some of the talents that you know are God-given are required and requested, 
you know, one should be able to give it. And, and, and that is very much uh, my, my, my conviction and, 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 and my faith. Well, so his faith, his conviction, his knowledge, his personal, all here on Sky TV. That's for you, Chachu Chikata. Thank you. Thank you, too. For more groundbreaking interviews, subscribe to African Pod on Spotify or on your favorite podcast app. Also on YouTube, just search for African Pod. And that is African Pod, all as one word. Follow us on Twitter, at African Pod. African Pod is everywhere on the internet and is all for free. Subscribe today.